Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared and host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B SaaS industry thought leaders, executives, and people just like you to discuss what metrics, KPIs, and benchmarks they use to enable better data-driven metrics-informed decisions that accelerate revenue performance and increase enterprise value. Now, on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Today, we are joined by Tom Riley, former CEO of three successful disruptive software companies, including Cloudera, which Tom took public, ArcSight, which Tom helped take public, and then was acquired by HP, and Trigo, who he did in partnership with Byron Dieter from Bessemer Ventures, a former guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast, which was ultimately acquired by IBM. Today, with Tom, we'll be covering three main topics. Are the metrics different in a private acquisition valuation versus a public market evaluation? Number two, Tom's lessons learned from taking a company public and then leading a public company. And three, a discussion on the pros and cons of strategic acquisition versus an initial public offering. Tom, please take a moment to give a brief background overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics at Major Up podcast. Ray, thanks for the background and good to be joining you today. So uh, just by way of introduction, I began my career as a salesman and then a sales executive. And then later in my career, I was hired in three times as a CEO to well-run companies, companies that had found product market fit, but I was hired in to help scale the companies. And so that's kind of where my focus has always been on how do you take companies to scale? And most of that is around go-to-market. And what are the levers you can pull and go to market? And as Ray mentioned, the first company I did that with was acquired by IBM in a strategic acquisition. The second company we took public, and then that company became acquired by Hewlett Packard. And then the third company, most recently Cloudera, was a public company that also merged with its largest competitor. So by way of background, that's how I come to your podcast. Well, thanks for that, Tom. And I think our listening audience will get a lot of benefit from the insights because you've had such a stellar career. So let's move right into the first topic I wanted to discuss with you. And that is about your experience going through that strategic acquisition process, which you've went through twice, as you mentioned. And what advice do you have for early stage founders and CEOs who are either considering strategic acquisition as a possible exit strategy or maybe have recently been approached by a strategic acquirer expressing interest. What's your advice for them? I have a few thoughts, Ray. As you mentioned, I've been a CEO of a company that's been acquired twice, but I've also acquired a number of companies in those CEO roles or general manager roles. This is a truism. You want your company to be bought. You don't necessarily want to be selling your company. And the way a CEO can affect that is through strategic partnering. I think it's a very important role of a CEO to have very close relationships with their partners, increasingly those partners that might be likely acquirers in the future. Because large companies, when they want to do an acquisition, they're not buying someone that's knocking at the door saying, hey, we're here for sale. Companies tend to buy folks that they know and that they partner with. And it's partners that there's going to be synergistic value between the two companies if they're combined. Otherwise, why would you partner? When companies partner, you get to know the teams, 
You get to know what the customers like about the two technologies together or the two teams together. And so strategic acquirers are much more comfortable approaching partners because they know the team, they know the technology, and they know how the customers like it. So my advice to CEOs is you should spend you know, 20 to 30% of your time working with larger companies that are not only partners in a good route to market and can help you grow your business, but can be potential acquirers if the scenario is such that that's the right exit. That's interesting. I don't think a lot of earlier stage CEOs, and we're talking about that 5 million to 20 million, not one or 2 million, think a lot about partnerships, especially in the SaaS ecosystem. So how do you reach out to partners and under what auspice when you're first starting to think about those partnerships? Well, when you're obviously a small company partnering with a big company has many advantages to the small company. It can help you appear as a larger company because you're kind of endorsed by one of the more bellwether companies, and that'll help you sell more. It might create new leads or opportunities if you can incentivize that larger company's sales force. So that's all helpful. But the way to approach a larger company is not about what it's in it for you, the smaller company. You need to have all of your communications about what's in it for the bigger company. If the bigger company were to partner with you, how can you help that bigger company sell more, make their customers happier, or have a competitive advantage? And so when I partner, or I want to target a larger company as a partner, I and my team, we will spend a lot of time trying to figure out what's in it for that larger company. What's in their product portfolio? How can we complement those products? We talk in their language, in their terms. We understand how their sales force is compensated and paid so that we know that when we're talking to their sales leadership, how they can make more money or be more successful through a partner. So my advice here is speak in the language of the partner about their products, about their selling motion, and how you and your company can help them grow faster themselves. And Tom, do you recommend that you as the CEO reach out to that potential partner CEO, or is it more of a partner to partner manager perspective? Well, there's two types of partnerships out there. There are kind of just standard partnerships where you join a partner program, you get all the benefits and access to information, but I wouldn't call that a strategic partnership. If you want a strategic partnership, the CEO needs to be involved. And ideally, the CEO of both companies are involved. That is the ultimate strategic relationship where you have that, that open dialogue and the relationship is important to both companies. But at a minimum, the CEO of a smaller company should be involved with the right executive of the larger company for it to be a strategic partnership. There's plenty of other programs. You can join you know, Microsoft's ecosystem program or Cisco's partner program. And that's kind of uh, bread and butter. But for strategic relationships, the CEO needs to be involved. Yeah, I think it's really good advice, Tom. And I think for our listeners, even as a CEO, and even if you've gotten to that $20, $30 million and you've got a partner program, don't outsource that to the partner manager. Continue your own outreach to that CEO or senior executive at the potential partner company and do it yourself. Hey, Tom, let's pivot to something real quick. And that is beyond partner programs and helping lead to strategic acquisitions. When you were the CEO of Cloudera, one of the largest private investments I've ever seen made in a software company came from Intel. In fact, $766.5 million. What are the pros and cons of raising that much capital from one private strategic investor? 
Well, so it kind of goes back to the first conversation. Intel and Cloudera had a partnership and it became a strategic partnership. I personally managed a relationship with the CEO of Intel. And this investment made by Intel wasn't a financial investment per se to get a return on their money. It was a strategic investment for Intel to advance their own business. In this case, particularly their data center business where they sell all those servers. They realized that the fastest growing application driving the purchase of servers, whether in the cloud or in private data centers, was big data, machine learning, and AI. And they realized that by partnering with Cloudera, that they could have the most innovative company developing this new technology to optimize it for Intel architecture, therefore giving Intel a leg up and continue to grow their $15 billion business. So while Cloudera was only probably $150 million or so of revenue at the time, Intel saw it as a vehicle to grow their $15 billion plus business. And that's the strategic nature of it. Now, Cloudera did end up, as part of that relationship, raising a lot of money and raising probably more money than it needed, uh, which created some of its own challenges. But the money was part of an equation where we had to build out a performance lab, We had a joint product roadmap with Intel to optimize for the architecture. We had joint go-to-market efforts. And of course, Intel became a very large customer. So going back to partnering, it all started with strategic partnering, a relationship between CEOs, and then a very strategic joint effort to grow both companies' markets. Tom, you mentioned something, and I think it's a great, it's a good dilemma for founders and CEOs to have, and that is raising too much money. If you have that strategic partner saying, well, I want to invest a hundred million, but you know, you only need 50 million to get to the next stage of your company. Do you recommend that you don't look a gift horse in the mouth and take that more money than you think you need? Or do you negotiate down? Well, I believe in the adage of when you're fundraising, Always take more money than you think you need sooner than you think you need it because money can always dry up if for some macroeconomic challenge. And so I think, you know, Cloudera made the right choice of, you know, taking this investment and partnering with Intel. However, if you have too much money, it can lead to bad habits because you're less concerned or you can be less concerned about getting to profitability or cash flow positive because you have all this money. I find that people that are constrained by capital actually can run much more efficient businesses because they're looking at how to preserve their capital. And so that's the two-edged sword you want to watch out for. You want to raise enough money so that you can invest and grow your business, but you want to have the discipline to focus on what it takes to make money. What are those operational achievements that will get you to cash flow positive and, of course, drive your operating margin? And I've seen, and it's happened to me, uh, companies that have too much money kind of lose that discipline at times. That's really great insight. One of the last questions I have about that before we move on to another topic, and that is strategic partnerships are supposed to amplify your distribution capabilities. Maybe it's expanded reach or increased customer acquisition efficiency. Were you able to measure quantitatively the return on that Intel investment outside of their revenue that generated directly to you? Yes. In any partnership, once you establish a partnership, you have to invest in it. And that is assigning team members from both companies to make sure that we're getting the maximum out of the relationship. And those team members will do everything from tracking joint pipeline to close rates to engaging our sales forces 
to working with our marketing teams to generate new pipeline. And all of that needs to be measured. In a strategic partnership, you want to continually be delivering good news back to both parties to keep the momentum. Inherently, the CEOs or senior executives will understand the benefit, but a lot of times your sales forces may not understand. And so what you want to do is show growing pipeline, proving forecast, larger deal sizes, higher competitive win rates that are a result of the strategic partnership. And you need to track and measure those and have team members that do that. That's really good insight, Tom, because one of the things we talk to our customers about is the concept of marginal efficiency. And whether you're entering into a new market, like going from mid-market to enterprise or doing a new strategic partnership, make sure you measure your predictive value-creating KPIs like CAC ratio, CAC payback, gross dollar retention on a cohort basis. So know exactly how your KPIs are performing for that strategic partnership in context of your overall KPIs. Thank you, Ferrey. Anytime you have the word strategic in front of whether it's a partnership, whether it's a new product, whether it's a new market you're entering, I connote strategic meaning investment. And if you're making an investment, let's say in a new market, you need to measure your progress at a very granular level to know if it's paying off. One of the greatest mistakes you can make is make a strategic bet and not determine that it was the wrong bet and keep pouring money after a bad thing. So the only way you can do that is have KPIs, have metrics, compare your prior business to what you're doing from a new strategic initiative and make sure that you are getting a healthy return on that strategic investment, whether it's a partnership, it's opening a new market, it's coming forward with a new product offering. Okay. Well, what I've learned as an entrepreneur is the ability to pivot. So we're going to pivot now to another topic. And that is, I'm amazed at how 2020 has performed from an initial public offering market. And just in the last four to six weeks, we've seen huge IPOs from Snowflake, Palantir, C3 AI just yesterday, DoorDash and Airbnb today. And they're all being celebrated as well. Look at the return on investment for these entrepreneurs and our investors. But Tom, do you think IPO is is still the best approach to return capital to investors and reward employees with all the private investment and capital available out there in the marketplace today? Well, it's yes and no. So it depends. It used to be that when you started a business and you aspired for a liquidity event, there was really two routes to that liquidity event, going public or selling your company to a strategic. Today, there's many other options. First off, we need to remember that an IPO is a financing event. You're typically selling off 10 to 15% of your company to investors, in this case, not venture capitalists, but to individual investors or the investment community. And you're using those funds to grow your business. So the traditional IPO route, which I've done twice, is very, very rewarding and very good. However, it has its challenges. Increasingly, it is being reserved for the blockbusters, like you mentioned, the snowflakes or the Airbnbs the companies that have a lot of excitement, a lot of high growth. Yet in the tech industry, there's a lot of businesses that aren't as exciting, yet they are very sustainable. But maybe an IPO might not be the right thing for them. And so now we have new options. Beyond VCs, there's growth equity firms. There are private equity firms that will let you stay private longer. They will do some secondary shares and buy out some of your early investors so you can get some liquidity. And they keep you out of the you know, quarterly scrutiny of the public markets. 
And then in the past two years, a new vehicle, the Special Purpose Acquisition Corporations, or SPACs, have become another means of getting liquidity in entering the public markets in a much more efficient way. So I have done two IPOs and I found them extremely exciting and successful, but there are other alternatives, whether it's growth equity, private equity, or the special purpose acquisition corporations that CEOs need to evaluate. And it all comes down to what your unique needs are. Tom, I, I think about your Cloudera experience, and I'm a huge fan of CNBC and watching Jim Cramer, right, to understand their take on the marketplace. And one of the things I notice is how much scrutiny happens with public companies and the CEOs and with activists, investors, et cetera. I'm almost thinking, right, I've never taken a company public as a CEO, that it might be easier to look at some of these alternative liquidity events versus managing a public entity and being faced with that quarter of a quarter scrutiny. What do you think? Well, running a public company has its challenges and it's mostly comes down to that transparency and quarter over quarter scrutiny. But essentially you are offering your shares into the public markets and with less sophisticated investors. If you think of even mom and pops can buy your shares. And so that's why there is this level of transparency and scrutiny. Now, for very well-run companies, it is not a problem. And when I was, my two companies, I started acting as a public company well over a year before IPO. And what you're really working mostly on is your long-term visibility into your sales projections. A well-run public company needs to have pretty accurate predictions of your growth rates, your operating margins, and your performance for three to four quarters. And you can only do that with lots of metrics and really understanding your business. If you're not quite ready for that level of scrutiny, yet you have pressure maybe from long-term investors or early founders who need some liquidity, then you can look at these alternate paths, you know, selling to a private equity firm or working with a special purpose acquisition corporation or a growth equity firm and staying private longer or getting some liquidity along the way. Good insights. Well, let's move to another topic. And you, for almost 20 years, were the CEO of three great companies. And then after you decided to step out of Cloudera, it seems like you've been doing a lot of early stage helping aspiring founders and entrepreneurs really get both product market fit and then reaching scalability. So what is the key differences you're finding from being brought in to scale very successful companies to providing earlier stage advice to aspiring entrepreneurs and founders? Uh, it's quite a bit of difference, Ray. So I look back, the first company I joined, you're familiar with when you and I met, was Trigo. And actually, that was one of the smaller companies. We took that company from a million in revenues to 20 million before selling to IBM. And then when I joined ArcSight, it was about 50 million in revenue. And I came in, not only took it public, but we took it to about 300 million in revenue before selling to HP. And then within HP, that business scaled to 700 million in revenues. And most recently, when I joined Cloudera, Cloudera was about at 70 million of revenues. And when I exited there last year, we were about a little over 700 million in revenues. So all of those companies, my role was to come in and scale the go-to-market side of things. And I worked and studied metrics that you're very, very familiar with, whether it's our customer acquisition cost, the lifetime value of a customer, how do we price to get the most revenue out of any single transaction? What are our renewal rates 
our net ARR rates when you factor in retention and churn, sales rep productivity, what's the quotas we can get, commissions, everything, you know, all your work was around go-to-market and scaling the business. Once you find product market fit, it is how fast you grow without burning yourself and burning through cash too much. Now what I'm doing is I'm working, I think about 11 companies, all earlier stage, and I enjoy this work. It's less about sales and go-to-market. It has a lot about getting early customers and early partnerships, but it's not about scaling a sales force as much as it is finding that product market fit. And product market fit is not only understanding your technology and its value proposition, but how much you can charge for it, how you can grow a customer relationship, who your competitors are, what is your sales cycle, what type of people do you require to sell it, who are your potential partners. And once you've figured all that out and you kind of got that equation together, then you can move into the scaling stage of the business. So I spent a lot of time scaling and I'm really enjoying this product market fit that I'm doing with earlier companies. And where I can help them is really defining what product market fit means in a complete sense so that when you do scale, you're not making mistakes. Yeah, it's interesting. I recently hosted the co-founder and first CEO of DocuSign, Court Lorenzini, on the podcast. And he kind of broke companies' evolution into three phases. One was kind of concept on a napkin to product market fit. The second was scaling and scalability. And the third was profitability. And he said for him, he always loved that concept on a napkin to product market fit. But scalability just wasn't as exciting for him. But it sounds like you have proven that you were great at both scalability and profitability, but you like the napkin to product market fit almost as much, if not even more at this stage of your career? Well, frame it this way, right? I've been scaled to profitability is where I kind of built my skills. But where I think a lot of companies, earlier companies fail is they think they have product market fit. They don't. They start to scale and they burn through cash. And so what I'm really enjoying now is helping younger companies figure out what really is product market fit. When have you really figured out and you are ready to scale so that you don't make a mistake and burn cash? It's new territory for me, but I'm enjoying it because I know what I would need to scale a business. And I'm now working with younger companies saying, let's get there before we hire up a big sales force. And product market fit is not just about the product. It is about competition. It's about partnerships. It's about what you can charge. It's about your selling motions, who you're selling to, you know, who's the buyer. There's a lot of things you need to complete to really have product market fit before you're ready to scale. And I think many young companies miss that completeness. Now, I also think back to something you said earlier in our podcast, and that was you started treating Cloudera like a public company a year before you went public. And that's also the advice we give to entrepreneurs, whether they're seed going to series A or series A to series B or series B to series C, is you need to start thinking like you're already in that next stage. So if you're a 10 million ARR company and you're getting ready for series B, maybe in six to 12 months, you need to instrument and think around your KPIs and metrics, like you're already a series B company, because that's what series B investors are going to be looked for. Does that make sense to you, Tom? It absolutely makes sense. So, you know, when you go back to the founding CEO of DocuSign, he talked about the different stages, you know, concept of product market fit, scale and profitability. Well, investors who are investing in each of those different stages are looking for different data points to substantiate their thesis. 
And so if you're going from a series A to a series B, those investors are going to say, okay, we assume you've got product market fit. And they're going to be asking you questions about what's your sales cycle? What's your average deal size? What's your competitive win rates? And they don't ask that when you're at the concept or product market fit stage, right? They're asking it because you're getting ready. You're at the, the cusp of scaling. And so you need to start working on those data points and come up with solid answers because those are the things that will not only tell you how fast you can scale, like how many people you hire and then what's the ARR and what's the lag, but it's those things too that'll start helping you understand your customer acquisition costs, your lifetime value, what's your payback on a new logo win. And all these metrics are important to nail down for the next thing when you're doing a series C or D where investors are wanting to know how you make money, not how you make revenue, but how you make money and how you become profitable. So you do need to start building your KPIs and your metrics, you know, six months to a year in advance of when you need them, because it takes that amount of time to understand those numbers and collect them. Yeah, totally agree with that. And one of the things we always say, whatever stage you're raising money at, if a venture capital firm or a private equity firm is going to put 20 million or 100 million to work, they're looking at, yes, how much ARR or revenue this is going to generate, but they're also looking at how much operating profit, how much net income, and quite frankly, how much shareholder value that that's going to create. So you need to be thinking about how your metrics drive all four of those, revenue, operating profit, net income, and enterprise value. So let's finish today's session, Tom, with Something that I think a lot about, because, you know, you and I sometimes review, well, you guys have been in the industry for 20 to 30 years. It's not relevant to 2020 and beyond. But I think pattern recognition and lessons learned are always applicable. So if you look at the market today going forward over the next five to 10 years, how do you think it's that different than what we've seen over the last 20 years? Well, the world has changed a lot, yet there are things that are always consistent. So I'll go back to our last subject we're talking about, you know, the life stages of a company, a concept, product market fit, scale, profitability. That is consistent when you and I were building companies 20 years ago, as it is today. The biggest change, though, is speed. And we are going through those cycles much faster. And why can we do it much faster today? Well, I think there's three things. First off, technology that's available with cloud computing and access to resources on a rental basis, companies with very little cash can start building out their product offerings and get the, you know, go from concept to product market fit with in a much shorter time. There's a lot more reusable software assets and components. So you don't have to build everything. So basically your engineers or even, you know, outsource engineering teams can deliver capabilities much faster. Second, unlike 20 years ago, there are a lot more resources that young companies can turn to. So it used to be just traditional VCs and you'd walk Sand Hill Road. Now there are just hundreds of angel fund companies and seed fund companies and VCs of various stages with specific vertical expertise. You have access to growth funds, PE funds. And so it's access to those resources, financial resources that are a lot faster and quicker. Today, you can get law firms to give you legal documents for free, set up your equity programs for free. You got access to virtual conference rooms and office space. So you can build companies a lot faster. As such, when we talk about product market fit, 
I coach companies. I go, look, you got six months to get to product market fit. Ray, 20 years ago, people took two years, sometimes three years to get to product market fit because we had to work so slowly with customers in their on-prem data centers and ship them software. Now in the cloud, you get instantaneous feedback. So we're accelerating by you know three, four times just getting to product market fit. In selling, we're doing a lot more virtual selling, especially in this time of COVID. And so when it used to be, hey, you had to get on an airplane or in a car and go see a customer and you did you know three, four sales calls a week. Now you can do five or six sales calls a day you know, virtually online. So everything is faster. All the learnings are the same. And I come back to your key theme of metrics. When you're moving faster, that means you can make mistakes sooner. And so you have to be quicker to know when you've made mistakes and, you know, kind of reiterate. And this is where metrics and measurements come in. I think companies have to start measuring things a lot faster and a lot sooner to make sure that they're getting the best return on their almighty investment, whether that investment is their time, it's their resources, or it's money. So that's the biggest change. I would just break it down as everything is a lot faster. Totally agree. And I think there's one other aspect that I see going on, and I think we've just scratched the surface, and that is the concept of product-led growth, that you can get a product out there very quickly, even for the enterprise market, have the users actually use it and provide feedback and iterate very quickly with very minimal customer acquisition costs. So I truly believe, and by the way, the metrics there are things like product analytics, look at engagement time, look at where they drop off, look at how often they come back and use your product. It just makes you so much more efficient in the expansion of those customer relationships. So I'm a big fan of also looking at product analytics. I agree, Ray. And also, Product-led growth is, you know, listening to your customers and iterating fast on the product design to make it, you know, more sticky, make the customers like it more. But the other thing I find about product-led growth is let your new customers find your product themselves and let them refer the product to their colleagues. And what you want to do is have this more viral product adoption capability that in and of itself is shortening your sales cycle. So you see a lot of these new freemium models, right? That, hey, get access to our product for free, get a taste, and then it kind of goes viral. So I find that exciting as well. So let's wrap up with knowing that time is our most scarce asset. And even though I know you would love to, it's going to be hard to talk to a thousand or 2000 entrepreneurs and provide them the benefit of your experience. So what's the final words of advice you have for our listeners today? Well, I'll mean this comment seriously, despite, you know, your whole focus is on metrics, but I believe you got to run business by the numbers and you can be easily swayed by emotion when you're building a business and that emotion can blind you to mistakes you're making. Numbers don't lie. And you need to look at your numbers. You need to measure your business and all aspects of it. And that's going to help you be a very successful leader and CEO or entrepreneur because Ultimately, we're building businesses. Building businesses come down to one simple thing, making a profit and a return on investment. Well, to determine making a profit or return on investment, it's all about numbers, right? You have to calculate that. And you have to understand your cost of goods. You have to understand your cost of selling. You have to understand your you know, projected growth rates, how much capital you have, how you want to preserve it. I wish when I was a younger CEO that I had more financial acumen and ran more on numbers. It would have helped me. 
But I've learned over the years, especially as you become a public company, that's what you need to do. And the earlier you start it, the faster you will get to public markets or to a strategic exit, and the faster you will grow your business because you'll make fewer mistakes based on facts. Great. Well, I think it's a good way to end the Metrics That Measure Up podcast is with a very successful multiple-time CEO sharing that, put that infrastructure, that capability, and that competency in place as early as possible so you can not only identify great product market fit, but scale to profitability and huge ROIs. Tom, thank you so much for joining today's episode of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. You're welcome, Ray. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit RevOpsquared.com.